Safety, dependability, and power. Chevy Silverado isn't happy unless the work is hard and the day is long. No wonder Silverado is America's number one best-selling retail pickup truck. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. And hello, everybody. Welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain for another great politics podcast. You know, I'm usually doing theater on the podcast uh, and I leave TV for the world of politics. But today we're going to bring politics over because I'm uh, fortunate enough to be talking to the author of a New York Times bestselling book. It lived a full life of three weeks on the New York <laughs> Times bestseller list. It's called Why We Did It, A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell, written by the great Tim Miller of the Bulwark. Tim, thanks for joining me. It's good to I saw you on TV and now I get to talk to you on the podcast. Thank you. Sir. I am pumped. So happy to do this. And yeah, I wanted that fourth week. But, you know, my good friend Liz Smith, who wrote another great book, Any Given Tuesday, edged me out and I couldn't have I couldn't have uh you know given way to a better better political memoir so which, which three is, weeks i'll take yeah and uh and of course she could have waited a week maybe to put yeah, her come on put her book out but i don't know <laughs> congrats and actually you know what i think i think you probably have probably younger people order audio books now and i don't think that counts for new york times yeah i know it doesn't it stinks and i do i've had a bunch of audio book sales so anyway i'm just thrilled i'm happy people right. are interested in it and want to do it it's been it's been really really amazing and well that's great honest. For people who missed the television part of the interview, yeah. just go to WGNTV.com slash political report. You can watch it there. Tim, I'm going to try and work beyond it. Plus, you have done so many interviews. I wanted to try and do some different things with you cool. uh, yeah. on this just to you know give you a little fresh life. But I do always have to start with this question, because while I think everybody knows you from seeing you everywhere, for those who don't, uh, give me a little bit about who Tim Miller was before the 2016 election and who Tim Miller is today. Oh boy, that's a, that's a deep, we could go deep on that and, and answer it in a, you know, therapeutic way, but I'll, I'll just give you the, uh, the bio instead. Um, you know, I, I was from a, the eight, from a young kid, really interested in politics, love politics, got involved in a Republican political campaign when I was 16. Everybody, I hadn't hit puberty yet. Everybody thought I was 12. Everyone asked where my dad was. I was like, my dad's at work. I'm just I'm <laughs> interning. Um, I, it just was a love that I had a, as a kid. And, uh, you know, I was attracted more to, towards Republicans at the time. But, it, but uh, you know, I was a moderate Republican. And it was what I really loved most was just the politics of politics, getting out there, meeting people, the competition, the pageantry, all of that. So I get I get uh, sucked in uh, working for a guy named Bill Owens, who's governor of Colorado. He goes on to become the head of the Republican Governor Association. And I basically become a campaign gypsy for the next, uh, you know, decade and a half um, from, you know, 16 into my 30s. Uh, I worked for a lot of the moderate Republicans running for president, John McCain in 08, John Huntsman and then Mitt Romney in 12. And then I was Jeb Bush's communications director in 2016, um, you know, took a bunch of jobs, a bunch of places in between that. Uh, and, you know, then uh, Donald Trump came down the escalator and changed everything for the country, for me, et cetera, for many of us. Yeah, and I was going to say, right, he didn't change it for everybody. And that's a lot of what this book is. Listen, it's why yeah. the book is called Why We Did It, because you address, you do name names in this book. And you, you really address kind of what happened to some people. And, you know, as I watched our TV interview back again, I realized I had misstated a question to you. Okay. Um, and I didn't catch, you know, you have producers in your ear talking to you and whatever. And it wasn't until I watched it back that I realized what I had said that was wrong. But I had said to you that in the book, we don't really get answers to why people uh, turn the way they did for Trump. And you said, well, there are many reasons they've done that. I realize that's not what I meant to ask you. <laughs> what I meant to ask you was we really don't have an answer and don't think the book does about how you fix it, how you bring people back, because Lord knows you've tried. 
Yeah, the fix it up part isn't in the book for a reason. It's funny. I, I turned the book in to my editor, uh, and um, initially, uh, you know, in the last chapter, I, I don't want to give away to the end for people, but but in short, it's a convo with a good friend of mine who was also a moderate Republican who got really sucked up into the upper echelons of Trump world and ended up having her name on the. Uh, uh, on the permit for the January 6th rally at the mall. And so I mean, we couldn't have gone more different ways. I, I became a never Trump spokesperson on TV. Right. And so, so we went and met and had a long conversation during which I hoped that I might be able to sort of, you know, be the, uh, you know, in goodwill hunting when Robin Williams is like, uh, you know, hugging Matt Damon and saying, it's okay. It's not your fault. I want, I, you know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be the Robin Williams to her Matt Damon and, and pull her away from the edge. And I just couldn't do it. And, and, and so the book ends kind of in a melancholy place. Um, but I, I, I think that the reality is that there are a lot of reasons and rationalizations for why people got here. Some of them are very legitimate. I, I understand why I, specifically some voters, you know, are attracted to Donald Trump. Uh, I think that a lot of my peers who I focus the book on, who knew better, who knew he was dangerous, who told me he was dangerous and then went along with him anyway. I have a lot less sympathy for them. But I'm hoping that, you know, that in some ways this can be a nudge just in just just by making people not look at themselves and say, oh, I'm bad or, oh, everyone that's for Donald Trump is bad. That's not the point. It's to say, can I look at this? Can I look at this man and what he did, particularly after the election in 2020 and still go along with it and be within my integrity? Like, is that still, you know, are those two things that, that, that can still live together inside of me without conflict? And I think for a lot of people, they are. And, and ho- hopefully, I don't know that I can save the country with this book or that, that things can get better, but hopefully some people can be nudged away from their worst angels, uh, from their darkest angels, rather, uh, that, that allowed them to justify working for somebody they knew was bad, assuming he comes back around again, which I, which I think that is a good assumption at this point. So it's fair to say that a lot of what you did was opposition research, and we'll talk yep. about this, but there's a place for that, as you say in the book. But what I want to know is, look, you're, you know, you're very uh, uh, prominent on MSNBC now and all these places. So people who are sort of, you know, have drunk that Kool-Aid, uh, who yeah. believe that Trump is a nightmare and all that, they're reading your book. They put you on the bestseller list, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. But my question for you is, for folks who are watching the uh, Fox and AON and some of the conservative media, what argument do you have that they should be reading your book? Well, uh, yeah, I think for starters, um, you know, they might be interested to learn or to be confirmed. There's one, there's one thing that I, I think I'm completely aligned with your average Fox viewer and OAN viewer about, which is that establishment Republicans are full of it. You know, I, I, look, I had a, a guy that I wrote about. Um, uh, I, I don't think I can say who it is, but it was one of the far right pro Trump reporters. And I wasn't that nice about when in writing about this person in the book. Uh, but they called me afterwards and said, you know what, you're mean, you know, in some of your <laughs> comments about me, but you're also right. And you get it. And you get that, that there's this bottom up movement of people that want the Republican Party to be more nationalist, to be, you know, less globalist, less elite, less a party of the, you know, coastal elites, more a party for regular working people. And that we are actually t- have taken over over the party and we are in charge and all of these people in Washington who are going along with us um, might be telling themselves that they're still in charge, the Mitch McConnell crowd, but they're not really. They're, they're all just vessels for this MAGA movement. And I believe that that's true. And so I think it's an honest look at, at, at the establishment Republicans went along with it. If you love Donald Trump, you're not going to like me very or not going to agree very much with the, with the book, but I think you'll agree with that assessment. And maybe, maybe, you know, you, you can be 
just made aware of of a brutally honest, deeply you know held uh, view about why Donald Trump in particular is dangerous, um, but not why the people that support boredom necessarily are bad. And and so maybe that, maybe that would be appealing to some people uh, on the right. Not 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 everybody, of course. Yeah, fair enough. But but obviously you want people on the left and right reading the book. So I want yeah, sure. to be able to reach out to them. And and here's the thing: as I said, your job essentially, and and people like you, uh, it's opposition research, and you have so many stories in the book about that. And essentially, you make the point in the book, which is to say there's it, there's not a lot of lines that don't get crossed, right? I mean, you can reach yeah. your limit, but that's the job of the opposition researcher. Yeah, it used to be my job. I'm happy to be out of that. Yeah, right, and right. This is also a midlife crisis book about my like career life change and looking back. And, and I think that hopefully in some ways the book also maybe it isn't for Fox News. Maybe it's just for non-political people. It's interesting because I, I try to explore a lot of lessons about like, what do you do if you're a mid-level or even upper mid-level person that's working at a company or working on a project where, you know, the rules are kind of gray and you feel like sometimes you're going along with stuff that, that goes outside of, of, you know, what you feel great about. Uh, but, you know, you justify it, right? Because you gotta, you know, it's, that's just part of the job, right? Um, or, you know, because on other days you're doing stuff that you feel really passionate and good about. And so you compartmentalize the things that you worry about are over the line. Like this was the experience of being an opposition researcher in politics. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, I started an opposition research company and and we felt like we had these like bumpers on the bowling lanes, like where we wouldn't go there, you know, certain certain things like conspiracies, uh, uh, you know, family, talking about family members, unless it was like directly relevant to the candidate. You know, we had these little rules that we followed. But what you learn is once you kind of get in that muck in the mire, that like there's always going to be somebody else that is willing to cross that line. And then you're going to be tempted to do it to compete. And, and you know, it's this race to the bottom. And so. Uh, I just I, I reflect, uh, you know, my answer to that is to it was to remove myself from from that industry altogether. I don't think that's the only answer, though. I think there are ways to do this that are within your integrity that can allow you to go to work every day and, and feel good about it. And so I kind of explore those red lines and those moral questions a bit in the book. I, I hope that it's interesting to people, even if they aren't in politics. Well, yeah, and of course, as you know, I've read the book cover to cover, and you talk about yeah. what you just answered to me, which is the horse race of politics, which you yeah. describe really as sort of a mindset. I thought it was interesting when you wrote that that political views mattered to a degree, but actually, it, 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 they take a policy takes a backseat to the competition you just talked about. A huge backseat, and this is this is the most corrupting element of Washington, is that. You know, there, there are exceptions, right? Some people go to DC and they care very much about a certain policy and they'll work for an advocacy group or an act, you know, an organization or even maybe a specific candidate who really cares about one thing or, or a couple things. But, but that's not most people. Most people in Washington go there because they like politics. They like access to power. They like the game, they like the competition. It's a little different for everybody. And so, uh, you get caught up in this notion where like, where, where you, where you sort of not, not really forget, but just make, make subliminal. The, this this reality that everyone that's in Washington is actually there to serve the public, right? It's not lobbyists, but but everyone that is working for politicians is supposed to be there to serve the public. But but that uh, you know you, you become like a 
a goody two shoes, you know, who gets sent to the back of the office. If you're bringing that up too much, right? If you're not talking about how do we win this media cycle? How do we win this day? How do we compete? And you can just see how corruptible that is. And, and look, a lot of people that I worked with just weren't that ideological. There were some, but, but, but they had a team Jersey. They put it on and they felt like their job every day was to do the best they could for their team. And, and even when that was in conflict with what was best for the public. And, and, and so, you know, that, that was a direct, uh, uh, you know, conflict with this notion of public service and everyone in Washington says, Oh, I served this, I served that, but, but really day in, day out, they're mostly serving their own careers. And, and, and I was hoping that this, the book could be a little bit, and everybody kind of already knows that that's exists, but I just wanted to give some particularly gross examples that, that well, hopefully was a wake up call for some folks and made them think twice about, about, you know, how they're conducting themselves. One thing I've always, you know, people tend to, to they can work for candidates who support issues that they support. You, of course, write, you're gay, you're happily married, daughter. And you write in the book that you have in your past worked for candidates who were, were anti-gay and, and had those platforms. You had to wrestle with that. I want you to address that in a minute. I'm going to broaden the question a little bit and say, I actually personally have always been curious about like log cabin, log cabin Republicans who are Republicans who are gay. And who, by the way, endorsed Trump in 20, 2020 before anybody else was even thinking about doing anything. And I'm sort of curious, how do you, when you have a certain group of values, and, and especially if, if you live a gay lifestyle and, and, you know, and you're part of the log cabin Republicans, I just, I, I have trouble wondering how it is you then work for a candidate who, who puts forth anti-gay positions, unless it's about the horse race and not about the positions. That goes deeper. Yeah, it does go deeper. And, and I, I think in a lot of ways, this book is about the way that we contort ourselves mentally to justify going along with things that isn't always in our interest or that we, that we actually are is actively against our interest. In, in my case, in the case of gay marriage. And, and, you know, I think there's some of these justifications are defensible, right? I hear from log cabin Republicans who are like, well, you know, I disagree with the party on, on, on gay marriage, but you know, the people that I worked for generally respected gays. And I, you know, the more important things to me is that, you know, we have a strong foreign policy or that, you know, small, smaller government, et cetera. And so I'm more aligned with the Republicans on these other issues. And like, that's true. That can be true to a point. But I, what I, what I discovered is that really a lot of times it's people that are just telling themselves comforting lies when they tell that story. And, and we all do this in certain times of life, right? Like it's hard to be the turd in the punch bowl. It's hard to just say, Oh, I, I can't go along with something that my friend is doing, that my parents are doing, that my boss is doing because it goes against my values. And so you come up with these little rationalizations that allow you to go along with it. And that's what I did. I just, I really just compartmentalized this and, and, and created these kind of ridiculous ridiculous, frankly, in retrospect, rationalizations that allowed me to do my work as an oppo research guy or PR guy for candidates that actively wanted to do me harm. Uh, and, and, and by exploring all that, I hope that you know, not, I don't want to create empathy, sympathy for people that went along with Trump who knew better, but a bit greater understanding for like how easy that, that is. And well, and when you write about that, as I said, those issues go deeper, but you actually write in the book about a friend of yours who worked for Republican governors and I think other state officials, but they actually confided in you. They never voted for a Republican president. So, I mean, maybe that's not as deep as a marriage. Yeah, but right. It's it, it is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And and it's kind of like the worst of what everybody kind of assumes about political folks. But it's like, 
really? Uh, you know, I mean, you're at the highest level of Republican politics and you could, can't even bring yourself to vote for a Republican to president, like for president, what kind of contortions are you doing in your head? And, and, you know, I think that, look, I, I, uh, there's this other example, like Megan McCain, John McCain's daughter, like one time ranted about how her and Sarah Palin are the only Republicans left from her dad's campaign. <laughs> and on the one hand, I don't know that that's the greatest endorsement of yourself to be in the same boat as Sarah Palin. But on the other hand, it's, it's true. I, it, it spoke to this truth that there were a lot of people that worked for John McCain who liked John McCain the person, but really weren't in line with Republican voters and Republican values, and that they worked for him partially, I think, in a good faith way out of loyalty and partially in a not as good faith way out of ambition and a desire to participate in the game. Can people reinvent themselves? I'm thinking of a recent fight, you're probably seeing it between uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's from this area, yeah. um, and Megan McCain's husband. Um, and it's about the burn pits. And, you know, I, I won't even get into the racist things that are, that are being said there. But it's like Adam Kinzinger, who is one of the most conservative Republicans you can have in Congress, along with Liz Cheney. If they ran today, you'd probably have a lot of Democrats voting for them, even though they were Democrats who might otherwise vote for Joe Biden. Can, can people looks like you're reinventing yourself some can can politicians reinvent themselves? Yeah, I look this, by the way, it's so weird. We're in these polarized times, you know, that this seems strange, but this happened all the time throughout history, right? Where politicians switch parties, uh, you know, politicians, uh, you know, changed, you know, what kind of groups that they're appealing to. Sometimes it was out of ambition. Sometimes it was out of uh, the fact that their ideology was revolving or a politician went away from them. I mean, this was the Ronald Reagan was a Democrat is the famous example of, of this. Um, so it's so of, yeah, of course, like this can happen. Um, and, and I think that Adam in particular, who I admire a lot, Kinzinger, has, has really kind of been unleashed uh, to say a lot of things that have been pent up inside of him for a long time. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I, I think that it's not surprising that maybe some Democrats would appeal to him. I don't think Adams changed his views on that many things, but I, I think that one thing that has changed is what are the salient issues in our politics, right? And if for you, the most important thing right now is what should the tax rates be and like how much regulation should there be in, in federal government, then, okay, you're probably going to still vote for Republicans. But if you, if the, for you now, the most salient issues are I'm concerned about the threat of democracy. I'm concerned about the corruption at the top of the Republican party. I was concerned about these culture wars, then, then, okay, maybe you're more aligned with the Democrats right now, even though you haven't really changed your views on a lot of the underlying issues. And I think that's the, that's the reality for Adam and Liz. I want to take this in two directions. Number one, in, I'm going to say recent column because people will see this a little bit later, right? Okay. Uh, or they'll hear it a little bit later. But uh, in a recent column of The Bulwark where you sat in the big chair, um, you wrote about Joe Manchin and uh, the fact that he's owed an apology, right? You know the column I'm talking about uh, and that entry. And um, But let me just point to the filibuster for a moment because George, because all these Democrats in the Senate got to get rid of the filibuster. Joe Manchin won't do it. And I think part of the the, the lengthy comments about that were written in the bulwark about J- Joe Manchin owed an apology. The truth is, if you have any doubt that, first of all, if the, if the Republicans take over the Senate after 22, uh, Mitch McConnell on his way to the chambers for the first day gets rid of the filibuster. Uh, and secondly, then Democrats, as usual, will look back and say, oh, yeah, we should have done it. And we didn't because basically they're they're not they're sort of weak when it comes to those kind of moves. I have, I do have doubts about that, to be honest. I, well, hey, look, just on the Joe Manchin thing, people need, Joe, people need to understand Joe Biden only got 29% of the vote in West Virginia. I think there's a lot of demands on the left that are completely insane for what they would expect Joe Manchin to be doing in a state that Joe, Joe Biden didn't even get a third of the vote. 
I, I, so I think that the fact that he has helped them get Kentonji uh, uh, Brown into the, uh, uh, the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court. Yeah. yeah, excuse me, is one example. Uh, this cut, this deal on climate they just cut. Uh, you can go down the list. There's a gun deal. I mean, Joe Manchin has gotten a lot done that are that are relatively center left priorities in a deep red state. So I think Democrats should be grateful about that. As for the filibuster, this is the demand. Well, and why Joe? Why won't Joe Manchin end the filibuster? Well. If he does, that's political suicide in West Virginia. So you're just giving away the seat, uh, which I don't think is smart for Democrats. And two, on the question of the filibuster, I just don't agree with this notion that, that the Republicans are going to get rid of it. Hmm. There's a difference in the Republican and the Democratic coalitions. The Republicans want to stop things and tear things down. The Democrats want to get things passed. And so for the Demo- for, for Democrats, they have a lot more things that they would want to do if they got rid of the filibuster. If Republicans, what would the Republicans get rid of the filibuster for? To ban abortion, I guess, is the example that I put forth, but there aren't like a ton of issues where Republicans are are chomping at the bit to get rid of the filibuster. So I, I'm skeptical that they would do that. And, and I actually think that this is one case where Mitch McConnell is not not being honest because he's oh an angel, but he's being honest about his interests, uh, which is keeping the filibuster because he'd rather he'd rather block the Democrats from doing stuff than actually do stuff himself. Yeah, interesting perspective. And the other direction I wanted to take your previous answer. I listened to the, uh, the the Bulwark podcast that you and your colleagues had last week about whether or not Trump should be pardoned or there should be a trial, right? Yeah. Um, I always want to send comments and questions in, but I'm, I'm listening while I'm walking the dog. So <laughs> uh, priorities. Um, but I get you now, Tim. So I, yeah, let's I do it. Let's do it. Bit. Yeah. So, you know, on that issue, look, I, I mean, I think and it, it got said by you and your, your colleagues on there, and I'm a lawyer by, by training and all of that. So the bottom line is, I think most people want to see there be a trial. Even Trump supporters should want a trial because if he's found not guilty, which he's likely to be found not good luck getting a completely anti-Trump jury, that's going to be tough. But the notion of a pardon, uh, a Joe Biden pulling a Gerald Ford, I think is disastrous. for the, It worked in 1974. It doesn't work in 2022. Yeah, I'm a no on that. Um, the notion of a Joe Biden pardon. I, I don't, I actually don't hate, this is where my uh, view might be outside of the mainstream of my new uh, Democratic fans that have strange <laughs> new respect for me. I'd be open to the idea of Joe Biden pardoning some of the people that were there on January 6th. And, and obviously, I think the organizers and anyone that did violence against police, et cetera, you know, should have the book thrown at them. But I think some of these people were victims of Donald Trump. And, and that's why I, I do not think that Donald Trump should be pardoned. He should be prosecuted. He did commit a seditious conspiracy to, to change the results of an election. Um, that, it's very clear that he did that to me. So I think he should be prosecuted. But, but many of the people who, who entered the Capitol that day believed him and were told a lie. And, and, and over and over again, but by, by people in positions of responsibility and authority, including those Republicans, by the way, who's continued to vote to overturn the results, even after they knew this was all phony baloney. So I, I just have a little bit of sympathy. You know, you see the, you know, the famous picture of the guy with the horns yeah. in there. It's just like, does this guy the really shaman, need to the go shaman. to yeah, the shaman, the QAnon shaman. Does that guy really need to go to jail for a few years? I, I don't know. I, this is where my bleeding heart comes out a little bit. I, I just, I, I don't, I, I don't think that they were the criminal. That, that guy was the criminal that day. Again, violence against police, jail. Okay, but but people who are nonviolent, I don't think they were the criminals there. I think in a lot of ways they were victims of Donald Trump and his mendacity. 
you know, I, the reason I love sort of going beyond the book a little bit with you is because because we learn so much about you in the book. It helps me. It feeds and informs me as to positions you take now. You yeah. spend the first I don't know, third of the book or so sort of with a mea culpa, maybe a little catharsis, yeah. blaming yourself and your friends for ending up in this mess. On television, we talked about, I sort of said, was a catharsis for you so you could address it again. But yeah. here I'm going to shift the question since it's our second conversation okay. and say, could you have written this book without having that first third in it where you sort of say, I'm sorry, but I'm responsible for this. Couldn't you just not done that? I don't think so. I'm, I'm hoping that it gives me more credibility, honestly, with the reader um, uh, for starters. I, so I think that, uh, you know, sure. So would some people have liked a book where I was like, here are all these assholes that went along with Trump and they knew better. And I'm going to, I'm going to spill all the tea about them. Yeah. I people would have bought that book. Uh, but, but for me to, for, for, you know, uh, to feel good about about doing that second part, I felt like I had to be honest about myself, um, and uh, and and I'm hoping also that that honesty resonated with. I've heard from some people since the books come out who work for Republicans still who have this inner conflict, who who I think are really doing some personal reflection themselves on on their their career path and whether they are are doing something that they feel good about. And and I, I don't I don't know this to be true, but I'm not sure that that it would have had that impact on those types of folks if it was just seen as another, oh, here's a bitter never Trumper sliming his former colleagues. Um, yeah. So, I, so I, I thought it was important both for myself and for the reader for credibility's purposes. They probably asked you that after they looked in the acknowledgments to see whether they were in there anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, you also have a little quick story in the book about Chris Matthews uh, referring to Sean Spicer and calling him a public defender. And you kind of, you say that was a sort of, well, my words, low-class comment uh, from Chris Matthews and, and all that. But here's the thing. I, I heard Chris Chris's comment differently. I think what Chris was trying to say when he was talking about Sean Spicer representing Donald Trump, so to speak, and defending him, I think what he's trying to say is the point is that in a lot of these situations, um, it's not that Trump has to prove he's not guilty of anything. It's that prosecutions, in a metaphorical sense, have to prove that he did it. So if we use the Chris Matthews comment and bring it forward, is that kind of the state that we move into, which is Trump doesn't have to prove what he didn't do, but essentially government and other people have to prove that he did things without a doubt, without a reasonable doubt. Um, yeah. I well, mean that I, I, yeah, yeah, not just yeah. legally. I mean that politically too. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I guess I'd have to go back and look at the whole context of Chris's comments. So I, I have two answers to that question. One, yeah, when you're making the case against Donald Trump, you've got to, you've got to you know convict him. And and I think that for a lot of people, you know, what happened was that this is what you hear the, about the but the tweets, right? When you think a lot of people, I, I think, still haven't been convinced that Donald Trump is is guilty of all the things that us anti-Trumpers say about him, and that they say that oh, all he's really guilty of is like sending some mean tweets, and like that's not true. And I think that part of the reason is that not a very compelling case has been made against him, um, particularly in the environs where they're getting news on Fox and et et cetera. Uh, As for the Sean Spicer thing, I I guess mine was less of a comment about Chris and more of a comment about Sean, which was, which was that there, there is this self-rationalization that happens in Washington, which is like, well, you know, I just work for my candidate and every candidate needs a, every candidate needs somebody to spin for him. And I don't need to actually think about the moral elements of this, right? Like, cause I'm just a guy doing a job. And, and the point I was trying to make in the book is that that's actually not true. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like in, there's constitutionally people, de- people do need a defense. Like that is a job. Public defenders are, that is a moral job. Even if you're, even if your client is, is, is guilty. Um, that's not true in politics. You're, you, you can choose who you work for. You can say that my candidate has gone over the line and quit and resigned in protest. You can tell your candidate, this is not something I'm going to go out and say. And if you want somebody who's going to say that, 
that, you can hire somebody else to do it. Like those are all possibilities, but the culture in Washington has gotten so like, you know, corrupted that that is like insane, you know, (laughs) that I, that people would look at me like I was insane if I suggested to them that they do that. And so I, I was just trying to point out kind of the flaws in this mindset that is widespread in Washington about, about how, you know, everyone has a responsibility to defend their boss, no matter what, which is BS. And Matthews did a two part interview with me on this podcast. I encourage our listeners to go back and check it out. Um, And, you know, the other thing that the book helps me explain, especially the fact that we can't explain why some people who kind of see things are different, but can't shift. I think about the house speaker from Arizona, Rusty, and so many others who went after Trump at the January 6th hearings. And then of course, when asked, would you vote for him again? Well, of course I'd vote for him again. Um, And I know some of them backtrack and all of that, but that is part of this issue that's going on, right? People get themselves locked into something like, like never before um, and, and can't get out of it. Yeah, this is now for some people, this is really deeply ideological. And I'm really trying not to focus on them in the books, mm-hmm. because like, if you're just, I'm just a pro-life person and I will never vote yeah. for anyone that's not pro-life and that's me. Okay. Like that's reasonable. That's not my view, but okay. Um, I'm talking about people who I think just get caught, caught up in this, the identity of politics. And a lot of these guys, it's their career. It's their social circle. It's how they view themselves. It's how they friend their friends view them. I'm a Republican. I've always been a Republican. And, and for me to say, I will not vote for the Republican for president is like a big step, right? It's, it's, it's hard to do. It's, it's, it's an affront to my friends who decide that they're going to stay. It's going to hurt my career. Uh, it's going to hurt, you know, it, it's going to make people look at me differently. And so I think that a lot of people are scared to make that big of a jump. And so that's why you see this things with the Bill Bars and the Rusties and then all the way down the line, people who are like, well, Donald Trump is bad. He's evil. He's horrible. He's dangerous. He tried to steal the election. He tried to do a coup, but maybe I'll vote for him again <laughs> because these things are just so powerful. Uh, I, uh, identity is powerful and breaking from identity is hard. And particularly when money is at stake and career and status is at stake. So I, I, that is what I'm seeing here and what I was trying to kind of shed a behind the scenes light on. And only a couple of minutes left before we, yeah. we, we have to stop. But, I, but but on the Democratic side, by the way, you know, if people are waiting for Joe Biden to say he's not looking for a second term and all that. But again, reading about the strategy in your book, what you write about, don't we both agree? Joe Biden can't say he's not going to run again in 2024. That'd be political suicide. It's lame duckness. I'm on the fence on this one. I, I'm doing my best as a pundit these days to not say I'm certain what would happen <laughs> if I'm not certain. I think that I understand what you're saying. I think it would be it would probably hurt him politically. I, I think I'm open to the argument though that saying you wouldn't run again would give him a little bit more freedom uh, to kind of do some wheeling and dealing. No time's running out on that. Uh, assuming the Republicans take the House and in, in the midterms, so I'm not sure. Um, I, I I worry a little bit that Biden, uh, who I think has a lot of great traits, is also pretty stubborn and bullheaded and that he decides to continue going on with a campaign um even if he you know if he's going to be 86 at the end of the next term that's pretty that's pretty old uh and so yeah so hard to give up the jet it is it is so (laughs) uh, i'll be interested to see how how that shakes out i I have some concerns about that for sure though finally last question um i asked you on the tv side about you know your daughter and what you would say to her years from now whatever but what advice do you have for young kids your daughter or whatever about how they should look at politics as they get older uh, yeah, 
well, for starters, going back to the identity thing, it's stupid to make your entire identity part of a, a party, political party. Political parties are are organizations that are looking out for their own interests. Like you should do what is right for you and your values. As far as career, if people want to get into politics, I just say there's a lot of this pressure. There's a social pressure to yeah. to to do certain things, to move up the ladder, to take certain jobs because it's best for you. People tell you, oh, I need you to be loyal. You have to do this, and that's all BS. Like like if you are smart enough and skilled enough to get a good job in politics like like you can you can write your own ticket uh and then we're gonna get cut off i'm gonna cut you there because we're gonna get cut off i want to say tim miller the book is why we did it uh don't miss it it's fabulous i thank you for your time i didn't want to cut you off but uh, it would have cut off in the middle before i could promote the book again that's all right i appreciate it thank you all so much and uh talk to you soon well if you want to know more about what we've talked about here follow me on twitter facebook instagram at paul lisnick that's p-a-u-l-l-i-s-n-e-k and i'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts you can also go to my website paullisnick.tv and hey don't forget to hit subscribe on wgn plus and itunes and tune in each week to hear more insider scoop coming to you from behind the curtain